So if you turn in your Bibles, like Daniel said, turn to John chapter 12. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. While you're turning there, I want to share a story with you. This is um, what I've learned what preachers do. They provide stories to get your attention. They, uh, some call it a hook. Um, sometimes, and I know this now, after a number of uh, messages that I've been able to share with you and others, that uh, it's hard to get just the right one to tell. I'm not sure if today's is just the right one to tell or not. I'm hoping it is. Um, it might be that it sounds more like a lead into an Easter sermon than a uh, Palm Sunday sermon. But it's really meant to be more of a story during the season of Lent of anticipation of what is to come. We'll go on this morning to learn more about the story of anticipation, but also the story of a misunderstanding, of disappointment, and of hope, both false and real hope. The stories of Palm Sunday and Easter are necessarily intertwined, but today is about the first of those two important days. So several weeks ago, our daughter Ashley was working on a school project, and she asked me to recall one of my favorite, my best childhood memories. Have any of you ever done that? You've just sat and thought about what, what's your favorite kid's memory you ever had? I highly encourage it. It is, if you're having a bad day, it is a really good thing to do. It didn't take me too awfully long to recall one. I think it might very well be my best memory ever. It was April 14, 1974. It was Easter, and I had just turned five years old eight days before that. Easter was a very special holiday, and I'd only just begun to realize that I was born on April 6, 1969, which is also Easter. And at five years old, that I knew, I thought kind of that Easter was another name for my birthday. <laughs> That and my family had always made my birthday uh, a, a really special day, too. So eight days before Easter, I had turned five years old, and the next day I went to church with my grandma Freeman. Growing up in Arkansas like I did, I had never seen a palm tree, didn't know what a palm tree was, and really didn't know what they were or uh, had any clue what Palm Sunday was either. I didn't regularly go to church, um, but that Sunday I did with my grandma, and I experienced that morning in church the older kids where she attended reenacting Jesus' triumphal entry, they call it, into Jerusalem. They weren't waving palm, frond, palm, palm branches. What they were waving, some of them, a few of them had uh, fern fronds, but most of them had cedar boughs because that's what we had, cedar and some pine, but the pine shed the needles too much on the church floor, so they used cedar. Right. I really still, to this day, the, the smell of cedar brings me right back to that moment. I frankly have no clue at all what was said in the sermon or in the Sunday school lesson for that day, but I do remember the intense air of anticipation and excitement among the people there. And later, still riding high from a great Saturday birthday and that Sunday morning event, I caught the next wave and I rode it through the whole week as my extended family made plans for a big Easter weekend. 
We had a huge family sleepover and camp out at my grandparents' house the day before Easter on Saturday, starting in the morning, all day long. We did all kinds of things. And then all of us cousins, I think there were more than 20 of us, went down the next morning, on Sunday morning, on Easter morning, about 6 or 6.30 a.m., to my great-grandparents' house, and we hunted for Easter eggs for over an hour. How many of you have ever hunted for Easter eggs that are not plastic? <sighs> okay, right? These were real eggs. They weren't even colored in most cases. Some of them were colored, but they were real boiled eggs. And once we all gathered them up, we had bushel baskets full of them, it seemed like, we gathered back up as a family in front of my great-grandparents' house. There were big, long tables set up, and the tables were full of um, orange juice, biscuits, jam, and butter, and sausage, and some other items. And all these real hard-boiled eggs were cleaned and uh, placed back on the table as part of breakfast. It was so fun. But for me, I noticed not just that I was having a good time, or the other kids were having a good time, but the, everybody there seemed to be having the time of their lives. For me, all day long from that point on, it was like, it was like a carnival ride that didn't end. It was an intense sense of happiness all day long that ended with me asleep in the backseat of my parents' car, going home. I think if I had the choice to live any day over again, that might be the day. That was... From beginning to end, nobody had anything wrong that I ever observed. Everyone had happiness the whole day. That's a really cool thing we could really focus on. So I want to pray as before we go into the scripture here. Father, I pray that as we open the pages of your word and explore here together, that we might find the truths you have for us here today. Father, may each one hear what they need to. May your spirit go before and prepare our hearts and our minds, and may the worthiness of Jesus to be followed be our journey's goal. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All these years later, though, that morning, the Sunday, Palm Sunday, there was a word that stuck out from my memory. I didn't know what it meant for a long time after that. I'd heard other church words before. Anyone think of a church word? How about amen? Is that, that's not a common usage, right? Or hallelujah. How often we go, do we go around saying church words like pew in common language? We don't, right? We don't say uh, maranatha very often in common language in our society, in our culture. And we don't say hosanna. Hosanna is the word that stuck out to me then. So... Let's turn to Scripture. Let's go to chapter 12, verses 12 through 19 of John. Just a few days before this passage in John, Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from death. He knew the Pharisees were now trying, they were really set on trying to kill both him, and thanks to Daniel for reminding me of this a few weeks ago, they were trying to kill Lazarus too, not just Jesus because Lazarus was evidence of Jesus' power. So what Jesus did was he withdrew to the wilderness, or near the wilderness, west of Jerusalem, to a place called Ephraim. Well, some little time later, nearly a week before Passover, 
he returned to share a meal with that same Lazarus who had been dead and his family and friends in Bethany, which was just a couple of miles east of Jerusalem. Our story picks up in verse 12. If you read with me here, verse 12 starts, The next day the large crowd that came, that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! There's that word, right? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. That's out of Zechariah 9, 9, 8 or 9, I think. Uh, 9. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, and had been done to him, the crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. The crowd had been with Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus when Lazarus came out alive out of the tomb and raised him from the dead and continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign, this miracle of raising Lazarus. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see we are, that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The crowd cried, what do they cry? Hosanna. Hosanna. Matthew, Mark, and John wrote this word Hosanna in Greek. But you know, it's, most of the New Testament is Greek, but that specific word is not exactly Greek. What they did when they took this word was they took a Hebrew word, an old Hebrew word, Hoshiana, or I'm probably butchering that, but that's okay. And they used Greek letters to write out the Hebrew sound. And they, they wrote, wrote it out, Hosanna. So turn, just keep a, keep a thumb or a digit or a bookmark in John 12 and turn back to Psalm 118 for a second. Psalm 118, chapter, uh, chapter 118, verse 25. You there? This is the only place in the Bible where that old Hebrew phrase, Hoshiana, appears. Anyone want to say how it starts out? How does, how does verse 25 start out? What are the first few words? First two words. Save us. Yeah. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's what Hosanna means, is save us. Hosanna is a cry for help. You can turn back to chapter 12 in John. Hosanna is a cry for help, or at least when the psalmist wrote it back in Psalm 118, that's what it meant. But over hundreds of years after that, it gradually changed from a bit of a plea for help to more of a confident cheer for help is on the way. It, was, it came from a cry for help to a celebration that help was here. And by t- the time that Jesus came, Hosanna's meaning had changed a little bit. Language does change over time. And so now, when Jesus is getting ready to enter Jerusalem, Hosanna had a bit of a different meaning.
That's made more clear by Mark's and Matthew's gospel accounts of this very setting when they say that the crowd shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, acknowledging his kingship and authority, or Hosanna in the highest. The crowd was shouting, Hooray for the king! They were pleading less and they were praising more. They were ready to follow a conquering King Jesus. They were celebrating the arrival of the one who they thought was the new political king, the new political ruler who would free them from the oppression of who? The Romans. Now, word had spread over the previous week of Jesus' nearby raising of Lazarus from the grave. So turn back to John, and instead of chapter 12, we'll go back to chapter 11 now for a second for context. In verse 1, it starts, and I'm not going to read every verse, but it's pretty long that I'm going to go through a passage here, skipping a few verses. I'll let you know when it is. Now, in verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the, the village in the, uh, Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. But in verse 4 it says, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now go all the way down to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and that was to the east, remember. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha, or Martha and Mary, to console them about their, or concerning their brother. Now go down to verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, who was with her? The Jews. They were consoling her. Um... When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She had a lot of faith in Jesus to preserve his life. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind? The man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? They too were thinking about Jesus' power and authority. In verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. And this is one of the favorite little things that uh, some folks remember. If you grew up uh, hearing some King James language, you might know, know this by, uh, Lord, he stinketh. That's what it says in the King James Bible. Um, For it has been, he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around. Who was standing around? The Jews. That they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his feet wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the same man that he shared dinner with a week later, or something like a week later. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had, had, and had seen what he did, what did they do? They believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh, no. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said, You know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In a lot of senses, friends, that's you and me. So from that day on, the chief priests and the Pharisees made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region of the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed with the disciples. And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for, who do you think they were looking for? Because why? Because he's amazing. What did he do to show something about how amazing he is? He, he raised Lazarus and they were standing around watching. They saw him. They, they were looking for him now a little while later, maybe a week plus later. Some of them said, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So we can see that a great many Jews were starting to turn to Jesus, to see or to hear and then acknowledge his power and his authority. And a great many now were there at the entrance to Jerusalem on that day, who thought Jesus could and certainly would meet their needs, their earthly needs, now as well. They were looking not only for their earthly needs to be met in a personal sense, but they were looking for the overthrow of the Romans and an ushering in of an era of peace and plenty. They'd even follow and submit to an earthly king that they believed Jesus to be to get it. 
Their palm branches they waved were symbols of Jewish nationalism and military victory. And one note here that we know in the Apocrypha in the Maccabees books, there, there is discussion of, of that same sort of symbolism of palm branches being used to celebrate a national militaristic vigor and victory. And that's an, another evidence of how those sorts of symbols change over time. The palm branch is a really important symbol in Israel. Verse 19 says that the Pharisees recognized Jesus was becoming popular with great numbers of people. Like me when I was five, they eagerly went along with the excitement and building enthusiasm for several days before the Passover. But unlike me in that week in 1974, before Easter, they were to find disappointment and disillusionment. They didn't get what they expected. I guess, in fact, that's sort of what happened to me three or four weeks later after Easter with my family. I, I, <laughs> my parents and I went to my grandparents' house, and then we ended up at my great-grandparents' house down the hill later that day, about, about four weeks later, I think it was. And uh, what happened to me, where my disappointment and disillusionment came, was I, the, the Easter egg hunt was not over. Anybody get that? The Easter egg hunt with these non-plastic eggs was still ongoing four weeks later. Has anyone ever found a boiled egg that's been left out for a month? It stinketh. It stinketh. <laughs> I was quite disillusioned and disappointed when what I found and expected to be a good and wholesome thing that I wanted what was inside that, that thing was absolutely neither of those things. It was entirely rotten. In fact, Kathy asked me when I told her the story, she said, did any of you kids do a stomp and sniff? <laughs> I, said, I don't think I did. Maybe some of the older kids did, but I didn't. The Jewish crowd was not either... Um, looking for something bad. They were looking for something that they thought was very good. After all, they were looking for a Messiah to be king of Israel, but they were not looking for a Messiah to be lord of their personal lives. They weren't looking for forgiveness. They weren't saying, Hosanna, save us from ourselves, from our own sins, Lord. They were instead saying, Hosanna, the king is finally here to save us from oppression. That's why when Jesus didn't deliver the goods, their cries shifted from Hosanna to crucify him. How big a change is that? Yeah. Just a few days later, that's, that's when their language changed. Six days later, I think, or something like that. They were willing to follow Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. But don't be too hard on them. Verse 16 says that even those closest to Jesus didn't really understand until his death and resurrection what was going on there. I believe that many, if not all of the disciples at that time, were well aligned with the crowds who were looking for a savior to free them from, from political oppression, among other things, but they didn't, they didn't get the fullness of what was to come in Jesus' kingdom. They were looking forward to the immediate relief that they thought Jesus would bring in that day and age. Thousands of others 
took even longer to come around when the Holy Spirit came upon them seven weeks later at what? Pentecost. We are privileged now because we can see these things not as history, but hope. Last week, Rick shared with us from Colossians. He shared from Colossians 1 through 4. I'll just read it to you. It says, Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is, in, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, the real question for today is, are we focused on who Jesus is or focused on what he can do for us? If your faith, if my faith is all about what benefits I get out of the deal, then where does that leave me when my car won't start? Where does that leave me when my relationships seem to be falling apart? Or when I get sick? When people say or do mean things to me, on the playground or in the conference room? Where does it leave me when I want, demand things from God that he has no obligation to give me? When God, while God can and often does bless us with benefits, with a full and rich, fulfilling life, in the here and now, he is not under an obligation to do so. Our reward for faith is not in this life, but in eternity with him. Let's not be short-sighted about that. It's hard not to be, because right now is right here, whereas eternity is somewhere out there. It's hard to see that, but that's why we're here today to, to remind one another about it. Today, though, we can consciously choose to follow Jesus for the right reasons, Maybe at first some of us were attracted to Jesus because of how it would benefit us. But that too can change. Don't follow Jesus for the goodies you think he'll, you'll get. Instead, follow Jesus for who he is. Who is Jesus? He is Messiah. He is God's anointed one. In ways no other king even could ever be. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He didn't gallop boldly in to Jerusalem on a big stallion. He arrived humbly on a young donkey, but yet he performed signs and miracles showing that he was the powerful and authoritative king that Scripture said he would be. He certainly arrived in Jerusalem that day as a king, even as the Lion of Judah, but even more so he entered that day as the Lamb. Some other kings might, and some kings have even, sacrificed themselves for their people. But no other king could do so as an atonement for our sins. When Jesus withdrew to Ephraim, he was not hiding out in fear of authorities. He was the authority, but he was faithfully and patiently waiting for the right time what was happening during that time when Passover was coming to Jerusalem was hundreds of thousands of people were coming to Jerusalem that were not normally there. 
He was waiting for the right time to come to Jerusalem. He was in full submission to the Father's will, and therefore he was in full control, being one with the Father. His life was never taken from him. Rather, he was going to lay it down for you and me. Friends, that's not someone to discount or discard or be disappointed in. That's someone to see as worthy of following throughout every area of your life. Or is he king of your life only in areas where he delivers the goods? I hope that a great many of you hearing these words have already decided to follow Jesus. I think you have. For you, when you decided to do so, did you expect certain things of him? What expectations or demands are you maybe still trying to hold on to? Have you let yourself feel um, disappointed, let down that you haven't gotten what you thought you would out of the, out of the, the contract you, you think you made with God? Please don't understand me, misunderstand me, because if we follow and trust Jesus, we're absolutely, we absolutely should bring our needs and our hurts and even our desires before him. It's completely legitimate to ask God to heal our illnesses, to mend our relationships, to help us experience goodness and plenty. He can do those things, and sometimes he even does. But if I say, I follow Jesus because I want him to do this for me or to give that for me, and I bet any of us could fill in the blank there. I know I can. Then I've got it backwards. I should be saying, I follow Jesus because he's the rightful king over every part of my life. So let's look at James chapter 4 for a minute. Just go ahead and turn to James chapter 4, verse 7. 7 through 10 is what we're going to look at. See, this isn't a name it and claim it thing. That, that, I know I'm not supposed to be negative about things, but that is very evil. It is not something we can do. We don't get to boss God around. Boss God around. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. He says, Purify your hearts and humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We don't exalt ourselves. God's best for us is in that closeness and submission to him. In that case, we can pour out our hearts and our minds and our wants and our needs to him. It's a challenge for us all, including me, to submit to God's will for us. There are times when I want to take justice into my own hands. Times when I want not just to be God's instrument for vengeance, which I'm not necessarily. I kind of hope I'm not most of the time. But I even want my own vengeance against those who I feel like have wronged me. or even though, even though I know that Jesus is my rightful king in those areas. And there are days when, even though I know God says, love your wife just as Christ loved the church, that I readily, willfully, immediately put myself first. And uh, if you don't 
believe me. My wife is right there in the second row, and you can ask her. Or better yet, don't. <laughs> it is really hard to submit, but worth it. Because Jesus is worthy. Amen? Amen. And Jesus is a kind and loving Savior. When I try but fail to follow Jesus, He is faithful to forgive. With Easter coming up next week, we have a great opportunity over the next several days to ask for His help, to ask for the Spirit's help, to identify areas of our lives that we haven't yet surrendered to Him or where we are still struggling. Maybe we don't even trust Him enough yet. Maybe we've got so much disappointment so far with the benefits we haven't seen that we're just struggling. Maybe, though, as Good Friday comes, as Passover comes, as Easter comes, as Resurrection Sunday comes, we'll be reminded of Jesus' worthiness to be followed in every way because of who He is. What will it take to give up the strongholds of faithlessness that we have? God doesn't expect us to walk through those things alone. He has given us the church and one another. Part of the church tradition this, this season is the season of Lent that we're in. We've only got a few days left of that period of focused reflection, so I just really encourage us to make the most of it. If we turn to Mark chapter 9, if you want to, or you can just listen to me read the verse 24 of Mark chapter 9, the gospel records Jesus as saying, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will get the benefit that they're looking for as a savior of their life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For some hearing that today, you haven't decided to follow Jesus. You've heard of his power, you've heard of his authority, of his sacrifice to save you, and the benefits that he may bring you, but you're still trying to save your own life, and that's something that you and I can never do. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me. It's only Jesus who truly saves. Maybe today you finally believe this. Maybe today you'll take the first step in following Jesus. He's there for you, and if that's you this morning, please don't just stop there. Tell somebody. Find them and tell them that you've decided to follow Jesus.